go through the ritual. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are here for the purpose of growth, as always. Our growth will come through studying the Word of God. Turn to John chapter 2, I'm sorry, John chapter 7, verse 2. John 7, 2 through 9. John chapter 7, verses 2 through 9. The reason why we skip over verse 1 is because verse 1 is a context passage that applies perfectly well to the Gospel of John, but does not apply so well in a harmony of the Gospel study such as we're presently doing. And so, after these things, relates wonderfully well to the context of John chapter 6, prepares the way for John chapter 7. However, since we're not doing a series of John's study, it does not necessarily help us out all that well in the overall harmony of the Gospels. For example, since I have a whole set of notes up here, as I look at the harmony of the Gospels, we have not been in John for some time. In fact, since episode 39 of the Galilean ministry, where the peak of popularity passes, Really, the follow-up to the feeding of the uh, 5,000, the, the I am the bread of life message from John chapter 6. And uh, then with the passing of that popularity and the departure, as we read in verse 1 of chapter 7, after these things Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And so that's a great uh, marker for context in the Gospel of John. But as I mentioned we kind of lose track of things since it's been, oh, looks like 14 episodes now since we've been in John. We've been in mainly the Synoptic Gospels for these recent events. Now, the Feast of the Jews, the Feast of Booths, was near. And we'll go through this and uh, discuss the, uh, the advice that the brothers give, the Lord's rejection of it, the impact of the message that he had for them. It was a hard-hitting message. He wasn't apologizing or anything. He was just telling it like it was. Uh, how are things for him? How are things for them? And why are those two uh, realms entirely different? All right, before we do any of that, though, we will take time for silent prayer to make sure each one of us is equipped with the Holy Spirit, prepared to study. And also, can we get that, those doors closed? All right. You want to do that in fellowship or out of fellowship? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We do thank you for your faithfulness, and we just rejoice, Father. You hedge us about. You protect us. We do ask for your blessing and protection as we study once again today, and we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. It's one of the features I added to the Bible software. Is uh, We have been keeping a close eye on the cameras, and, and the person that sits back there at the desk keeps an eye on the cameras. On Sunday nights, when... I'm not teaching, and I'm sitting on the back row or somewhere with my own laptop. Sometimes I keep an eye on the cameras as well. And uh, so I added a button on the Libronics toolbar that would go ahead and keep an eye on the cameras as, uh, as well. So, no, that's all right. I'm sorry? Oh, okay. How about that? That's right. 
Cliff did not have a laptop available to him on uh, Sunday, did he? You would have told me that, I'm sure. There we go. And so a, uh, a button on the toolbar allows you to see who's coming in the back door or uh, who's coming in the front door or who's hanging out in the parking lot. This was the benefit on Sunday when security saw that rascal out there in the parking lot putting the pamphlets on the windshield. Did you get one of those? All right. Well, some Beware of Pastor Bob pamphlets were placed on windshields, not only in our parking lot, but up and down Aggie Lane and who knows how far for blocks. But anyway, this is uh, what we're praying about. This is what we're asking the Father to protect us from. And this is why we have the uh, cameras available to keep track of who might be out there. All right. That should make you feel com- uh, confident and comfortable that if something happens, at least we'll see it coming and we'll ask La Rosa to deal with it. All right. <laughs> Episode 54, for those of you that are following the Harmony of the Gospels. Episode 54, there's only 56 in the Galilean ministry, so that shows you how close we are to uh, wrapping up the Galilean ministry and moving on to the last Judean and Perean ministry. We will uh, have a big batch of notes available uh, as soon as that portion is complete. But as for now, we're looking at verses 2 through 9 in John chapter 7. Jesus rejects his brother's advice, and we observe from verse 2 that the Feast of Booths was drawing near. So in the outline, point 1, we're going to get five points of study out of this, and the first of which is the context for the event. Point one, the Feast of Booths was drawing near. You say, what was the Feast of Booths? Glad you asked. We'll take a look at it. Let me just read verses 2 through 9 in one uh, stretch without interruption, and then we'll come back and get the details. Uh, Now, the Feast of the Jews, the Feast of Booths, was near. Therefore, his brothers said to him, leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works which you were doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. All right, that's the context for, that's the entirety of the episode that we're going to cover. The actual events that take place uh, following this, we will cover in subsequent episodes. Uh, You'll notice in verse 10, when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. And we'll talk about that a little bit because the phrase in secret there in verse 10 is the identical terminology that the brothers used when they said, look, if you want the publicity, you can't keep doing these things in secret. 
All right. So we'll have some things to say today from verse four out of publicity versus secrecy and uh, or shall we call it discretion. And uh, we'll, we'll address that and show the proper perspective on showing off versus being discreet about your business. And then uh, we'll observe when we get to the episode in verse 10, when he finally does make it to the feast, how uh, how he comported himself and how the uh, the events there unfolded. Again, I'll just since I have it up here, glance at the at the uh, harmony of the Gospels and see we will not get to John chapter seven, verses 11 through 52 until. Episode one in the last Judean and Prean ministry. So we have a couple other episodes, 54, uh, five and 56 to cover. And then uh, episode one in the last Judean ministry will be coming up. All right. This is a clean printing of notes. I am impressed with this. This is off of our new photocopier back in the office. So when, when we do release the Galilean ministry notes, it'll be it'll be a breeze. All right. Feast of Booths was drawing near. What in the world is a Feast of Booths? Sub, sub point A. This time marker pinpoints the conclusion of the Galilean ministry six months prior to the crucifixion. This time marker. Remember, we've been kind of guesstimating ever since the feeding of the 5,000. We know that was Passover season, one year from the cross. Now we've got another time marker. Feast of Booths, six months from the cross. And so everything in between those events clearly happens in between the spring and the fall of 32 A.D. We are now in the fall, September, October time frame of uh, 32 A.D., six months from the cross. And able to pinpoint it from there. Subpoint B. The Feast of Booths was the third required pilgrimage feast. There's several places in the law you can get information on, and I think the clearest or maybe the, the most succinct is Deuteronomy 16, verses 13 through 16. The Feast of Booths was the third required pilgrimage feast, Deuteronomy 16, 13 through 16, and it had particular kingdom emphasis. And by kingdom emphasis, we can, with our perspective as church age believers, call it second advent emphasis. All right. But go ahead and keep the term kingdom emphasis. Zechariah 14, verses 16 through 19. It is only, of course, with our hindsight as church age believers that we recognize a uh, 2000 year gap between first advent and second advent. In fact, it is only with our church age perspective that we recognize a two event process, a, a two advent situation. Prior to the first advent, everything looking forward could have conceivably been fulfilled with a single advent. It was not known that there would be two advents until the first advent was complete and our Lord returned to the right hand of the Father. Then, obviously, the situation with a second advent then becomes necessary. But the Feast of Booths has a kingdom emphasis. A kingdom emphasis, which today allows us to say second advent emphasis. Let's get to these, starting with Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 16, verses 13 through 16. 
reading passages like this gets me excited for our upcoming Arnold Fruchtenbaum conference in February. Here we are in February. Am I right? Yep, February the 6th. How about that? Arnold will be here on the 24th. But in Deuteronomy 16, verses 13 through 16, remember this is the third required pilgrimage. They had other feasts, seven, or depending on how you enumerate them even more, because there's the non-biblical feast they added with Hanukkah and, and uh, different things, Purim. But the ones that the Lord handed down in the law, three of them required uh, the, uh, the presence of every adult male before the Lord. And they were Pente- uh, Passover, Pentecost, 50 days later, and this one here in the fall, the Feast of Booths. So verse 13 says, there's a larger context for this that actually takes up the whole chapter, but um, it starts off with the month of Abib and Passover. All right. The months get different names uh, later in their history when they come out of uh, Babylon. That's fine. And then uh, verse 9, you shall count seven weeks for yourselves. Seven weeks is 49 days. The day after that is day 50, while they call it Pentecost representing the 50 days. And then the Feast of Weeks, you shall observe this. Then it comes down to verse 13. You shall celebrate the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles, in the old King James rendering. Seven days after you have gathered in from your threshing floor and your wine vat, you shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter and your male and female servants, and the Levite and the stranger and the orphan and the widow who are in your town. It is a covenant feast for the nation of Israel, but also the alien and stranger was invited to observe, invited to participate, invited to celebrate with them. And then becomes a teaching opportunity for the Jewish people to be able to instruct these aliens and strangers. Verse 15, seven days you shall celebrate a feast to the Lord your God in the place which the Lord chooses, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands so that you will be altogether joyful three times a year key verse here in verse 16 three times a year all your males shall appear before the lord your god in the place which he chooses at the feast of unleavened bread at the feast of weeks at the feast of booths and they shall not appear before the lord empty-handed all right so the feast of booths was the third required pilgrimage feast and it had particular kingdom emphasis join me in zechariah Zechariah, the end of your Old Testament, right in front of Malachi. Zechariah 14. Amazes me how Zechariah is included in the minor prophets, even though he's got 14 chapters. Goodness. What does it take to become a major prophet anyway? I think he was pretty major. Okay, so I poke fun of the name, but not like I want to change the name. Um, Zechariah 14. The um, context for this, uh, of course, the great day of the Lord, the time of Jacob's trouble, the the uh, attack on Jerusalem, the, the wonderful deliverance of the Lord, and um, God's faithfulness in, in I'm headed for verses 16 through 19, but since this ties in so well with other studies around here, notice um, how the chapter begins. Behold, a day is coming for the, for the Lord 
when spoil taken from you will be divided among you. In other words, you've been plundered all this time, but now you get to get it back and divide it up amongst yourselves. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. All the nations. See, of course, the present history and the current events of our world, uh, it's not every nation that's against Israel. There's at least one nation that still kind of sort of, for the most part, supports the Jewish nation. Uh, I think our support is less than it has been in previous years. And I'm concerned over what it will be in coming years because uh, the one who curses Abraham will be cursed. And uh, that bothers me. Nevertheless, I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem. There is coming a day when every single nation on this planet will turn against Israel. And, uh, of course, that's tribulational. That's post-rapture. That's after the church is gone. The uh, benefit, the blessing of the church in this nation will be removed. This will be an unbelieving nation like every other nation on the planet. And uh, bad things, of course, happen when your city is captured. Houses plundered, women ravished, half the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. In other words, there will be a remnant. God will faithfully preserve a remnant. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations, as when he fights on a day of battle. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. See, this is why we draw a distinction between second advent and rapture. We're studying the rapture right now in our First Corinthians series, First Corinthians 15. And at the rapture, we meet the Lord in the air. Why do we meet him in the air? Because he's not yet ready to land on the earth. He is not coming to conquer. He's coming to call out his bride. That we are delivered from the wrath to come. Very important. And we'll have more to, to uh, develop about that in our rapture uh, study. But in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. This is now second advent, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley. You can just imagine the adversary all thinking that he had the uh, his opponents there trapped. Nope, all of a sudden, here's the valley. But half the mountain will move toward the north, the other half toward the south. And you will flee by the valley of my mountains. This becomes their way of escape. This becomes their provision. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord, will provide. For the valley of the mountains will reach to Ezel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord, my God, will come and all the holy ones with him. Notice all the holy ones. You and I, the saints made perfect. What a blessing. In that day, there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle. It will be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time there will be light. And in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, the other half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. All right, so got the context. Second advent, glorious victory over the forces of evil and Armageddon, and the king will be seated with living waters flowing from Jerusalem. All right, the Lord will be king over all the earth in that day. The Lord will be the only one, in his name the only one. We will have a throne, and the Davidic throne will have dominion over every Gentile throne. Gentile kings will have to come and pay tribute. All the land will be changed into a plain. There will be significant geographical, topographical changes. 
from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site from Benjamin's gate as far as the, the place of the first gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. In fact, we know there has to be significant geographical, topographical changes uh, because if you read through the description of the temple in Ezekiel, Ezekiel talks about this millennial temple in chapters 40 through 48 and whatnot. That temple is so large, it would not fit on the current hilltop, on the current temple mount in the Jerusalem as we know it today. Well, some people mock about it, laugh about it, and say, oh, that's silly, that's goofy, or they try to figuratize, spiritualize, allegorize everything there. And they fail to realize, you know what, this other prophet over here talks about the, uh, the great uplifting of the land here and the enlarged uh, hilltop condition of Jerusalem itself. Anyway, people will live in it. And there will no longer be a curse for Jerusalem will dwell in security. It's interesting on the new heavens and new earth, there's no more curse worldwide or universe wide. However, in the millennial kingdom, the curse is dismissed from the territory of Jerusalem. I find that interesting. Now, it goes on. It's kind of gruesome. Imagine Hollywood special effects could probably do something with this. <laughs> this will be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet. It's kind of gruesome. You imagine? You know, I'd, I'd, I'd prefer to not rot until I'm, you know, six feet under and, and no longer on my feet. After that, I can rot, you know, my body can go ahead and rot all at once. Uh, their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongue will rot in their mouth. It will come about in that day that a great panic from the Lord will fall on them. <laughs> yeah, I'd say. And they will seize one another's hand and the hand of one will be lifted against the hand of another. Judah will also fight at Jerusalem and the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be gathered gold and silver and garments in great abundance. So it's a complete reversal. All the nations are surrounded around Jerusalem hoping to destroy them and plunder them. And instead, Jerusalem has the victory and they end up plundering all the nations that have gone to war against them. Uh, so also like this plague will be the plague on the horse, the mule, the camel, the donkey and all the cattle that will be in those camps. Then it will come about. Now notice, now we have the ongoing tribute that must be observed. This is what makes the Feast of Booths so significant with its kingdom emphasis. Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went up against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. All, of course, every male Jew will go three times a year at the required appointed feasts. However, the Feast of Booths will have an additional component. Remember, in the Old Testament, they were welcome to invite their aliens and their strangers and their orphans, that they could be invited and were welcome to participate on an invitational basis. Here, in the millennium, the Gentile kings will be required. One of those invitations uh, that cannot be refused kind of thing. All right? Now, what this text doesn't address, we get it in Matthew, we get it in the sermon, we get it in the Mount Olivet Discourse and so forth. We understand that at the close of the tribulation is the sheep and goat judgment and that all unbelievers are removed. There won't be many living, actually, by the time our is over with. All uh, unbelievers will be removed and cast into, into hell. Only believers will then begin the millennial kingdom. All right? That's whatever of the nations who are left. 
if you'd like, instead of the word nations, use Gentiles there. It's the same word. So it will come about that any who are left of all the Gentiles that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Now notice, it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. So if they fail to attend a Feast of Booths in any given year, from year 1 to year 999 to year 1000 of the millennium, whatever year they fail to reach, if they do not come to worship, then... uh, their rain gets shut off. It's like the landlord maybe cutting off your water if you don't pay the bill, or the city of Austin or whoever cuts off your water for not paying the bill. Jesus Christ will cut off the nation's water. No more rain for failing to appear at the Feast of Booths to worship Jesus Christ on the throne. Now, as I mentioned, the first year, I think everyone's going to be there. (laughs) Right? Because they were allowed to live to enter into the millennial kingdom, and they will all be believers. They will all be regenerate. They all have demonstrated their faith by showing uh, kindness and mercy to the least of these, his brethren. Uh, the, The millennium will begin with all believers. However, as each, as that first generation then gets born, and then that next generation gets born, how many generations will actually be born during the thousand years? And how many does it take for the apostasy to become all pervasive? All right. Remember, from the Exodus generation to the wilderness generation was just one, one generation of offspring. All right. And I think we're going to see that pattern replicated in the, uh, in the millennial kingdom. That those who actually survived the tribulation um, and they give birth to the, uh, to the next generation, the uh, interesting thing. And, I, and by the way, I don't think that they're going to live through the entirety. That the, the human beings, the mortals, that don't get raptured, that get saved in the tribulation, that are alive and childbearing to start the millennium. I know lifespans are increased in the millennium, but what about those that were born prior to the millennium? Do they have those extended centuries-long lifespans? Or is it the ones that are actually conceived and birthed in the millennium that have the centuries-long lifespans? And even if they have the centuries-long lifespans, Methuselah was the oldest one that ever lived, and he maxed out at 969. So why would we think that anyone would survive day one to day to a thousand years in the entirety of the, of the uh, millennial age? I don't believe that any of the tribulation generation will be there at Gog Magog. Their children will, and the subsequent generations very well could be, but... I don't think tribulational generation will. All right, so year after year after year, and you'll note it doesn't say if or if some. It says whichever family in verse 17, whichever of the families does not go up. There will be some, and there will be more and more with each passing year. Uh, In fact, by the time you get to Gog, Magog, again, all the nations are against Israel. Israel is the one faithful nation to the Lord. Kind of a change of pace for them. (laughs) All right. Verse 18, if the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. 
of booths. Evidently, Egypt will be the first one to rebel, and then others will follow. I believe, if you, uh, before we head back to John 7, if we look at Psalm 2, pretend that Psalm 2 is on the way to John 7. Psalm 2, I believe we have um, a cross-reference here that applies. Psalm 2, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Christ, his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. All right. Now, this concept has had fulfillments in the past. This concept has had situations in Israel's history where similar things can be observed. However, this passage has never had a total fulfillment because the kings of the earth have never been under the sovereign throne of Jesus Christ. That won't happen until the millennium. As far as tearing the fetters apart and casting away their cords from us. All right. This is waiting for millennial fulfillment. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Remember, when Gog Magog is finally destroyed, it's he who sits in the heavens that does it. Jesus Christ does not destroy Gog Magog at the end of the millennium. God the Father sends fire from heaven to destroy Gog Magog at the end of the millennium. And so you'll note, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. See, I believe Psalm 2 in its entirety is waiting for millennial fulfillment. Then none of it has had a fulfillment even to this day. See, and so uh, until such time as his king is installed upon Zion, this, this cannot be fulfilled. So now with a king installed upon Zion, that is Jesus Christ on David's throne, ruling this world from Jerusalem, Now, can we understand what are the uproar nation uh, kings here devising? Devising a vain thing. Taking counsel together. What are they conspiring about? What is this counsel together? Think, you know, conspiracy. Are you a conspiracy theorist? Well, I am. I like this one. Here's one right here. This is a conspiracy. It's not a conspiracy theory. It was written about 3,000 years ago. The, um, what are they conspiring I believe they are conspiring for water-sharing agreements. That they will have certain nations lined up to go ahead and go to Jerusalem to make a show, to make an appearance, to keep their rain turned on and be able to uh, supply the other nations um, in their consequence for not going up, for not receiving rain, for not receiving water. And so they are taking counsel together and they are devising a vain thing. They're providing for one another and their water needs and they're ultimately conspiring to demand the release of Satan out of the abyss. They're going to demand the release of Satan out of the abyss. All right. Revelation 20. Again, on your way to John 7, Revelation chapter 20, 
verse 6 says, well, let's just look at verse 1, an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and great chain in his hand, he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer. The national rebellion we observe is not under deception. It is under willful rebellion. Think about Eve. Think about Adam. Eve transgressed first. However, she was deceived. She was under deception. It was rebellion, but it was deception rebellion. Adam had full uh, accountability rebellion. Likewise here, Satan is bound for the thousand years so that he might not or would not deceive the nations any longer. Their rebellion cannot be, uh, you know, there can be no excuse made or no claim that, well, they were under deception. They will be under full, willful human rebellion against Jesus Christ. And so he is sealed up until a thousand years were complete. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Must be the language of obligation. This is a have-to, and it's a have-to in which God himself is party to the have-to. He must be released. And so there's the first resurrection. They come to life. They reign with Christ for a thousand years. Verse 7, when the thousand years are completed, <laughs> and I love that, in between verse 6 and verse 7, a whole thousand years goes by in between those two verses, just like that. You think, wow, where did the time go? Okay. It's like, you know, children have no context for time. For them, a a week is forever and a month is two forevers. All right. As adults, you can look back over other realms that may uh, seem like, wow, where did that go? Okay. Someone as young as Fallon here might look at at a year or a couple years, four years and say, wow, where did that time go? Or you get to my age, you look at 10 years and say, wow, where did those 10 years go? Or you get to older ages and you say, uh, I'm being careful. You get to older ages and you say, wow, where did the last 20 years go? Where did the last 40 years go? Okay. I'm not there yet, but I can still look back over 10 years and go, goodness, has it been 10 years? All right. Well, we're going to be eternal beings. We'll look back over a thousand years and go, wow, that was just like a day. Because with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. We're going to be on that same uh, perspective in our eternal glory. So uh, verse 6, start the millennium. Verse 7, millennium's over. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. Why? It doesn't say why. Although verse four has, uh, verse 3 has the language of have to, must. I think it relates to the conspiracy of Psalm 2. People of the, uh, that the nations of the earth are in conspiracy and the kings devise a vain thing. They think that their great victory is going to come by releasing Satan out of the abyss. And that will, he will be their deliverer. He will be their savior. He will allow them to overthrow what they view as the tyrant out of Jerusalem. And it's all a vain thing. And by the way, this this already had a preview. The preview for this came when they demanded. They said, give us Barabbas. What shall I do with this one you call the Christ? They say, crucify him. 
That's foreshadowing of what we're looking at right here. So when the thousand years are complete, Satan will be released from his prison, will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. You know, he doesn't have a hard time finding followers. They've been following him secretly, planning his release, planning for their great day of deliverance. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth, surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured the members of the Father. He who sits in the heavens laughs. They're devising a vain thing and the Father's going to squash it. He will rule on behalf of his beloved son. And the devil who deceived them was thrown in the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. All right, so that's the last we ever see of Satan. That's the last we ever see um, in terms of rebellion. All right, all of this is introduction. Point one, the Feast of Booths was drawing near. How about that? Seemed like a simple enough sentence, didn't it? It's a time marker pinpointing the conclusion of the Galilean ministry six months prior to the crucifixion. The Feast of Booths was the third required pilgrimage feast. So Passover is in the first month. If you want to call it Abib or you want to call it Nisan or whatever you want to call it, either it's older Hebrew name or it's newer Babylonian. They basically adopted Babylonian month names when they, uh, when they uh, left their Babylonian captivity. It's fine. It doesn't change the month. It's still the first month is the month of Passover. The seventh month is the month of uh, the Feast of uh, Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, the, the Rosh Hashanah New Year, and the uh, Feast of Booths, all in the seventh month. So from the first month to the seventh month, what do you got? Six months, all right? It's a lunar month, so it doesn't exactly line up with ours, but anyway, it's close enough. Six months out, all right? And for people that really, really want to get buggy about the names of the months and, and how wrong it is to have Babylonian names for your month and why they don't like the month Nisan or the month of some of these other things, well, what kind of calendar do we follow? You know, here we are in February, and what kind of month is that? And next month is March, so are we supposed to worship the god Mars? Is that, uh, are we following a Roman calendar or what? Anyway, this is Wednesday. Here we are on Odin's Day. Are we worshiping Odin today? Is it Thor tomorrow? All right, Thor's Day. So anyway, people that get goofy, I just kind of have some fun with them. All right. Point two, who are these brothers? The feast of the booths was near, therefore his brothers said, go make a big splash. His brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. Although typically we call Judas Jude because Judas has such a bad connotation to it. It's like nobody's named Adolf anymore ever since World War II. You know, no one ever goes for the name Adolf wonder why. James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, or Jude, or in Hebrew, it's Judah. It's like the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's the tribal name for the uh, fourth son of, uh, of, of Israel. Sons of Joseph and Mary after Jesus was born. Unless you're Roman Catholic and believe that she's the eternal virgin, uh, she had babies after Jesus. They're mentioned in Matthew 13:55 by name. 
And then there's the indication in Matthew 1.25, which stipulates the, um, the end to Mary's virginity in Matthew 1.25. We, we dealt with this already in Galilean Ministry 26. If you were here back when we did episode 26, Galilean Ministry 26, Mother and Brothers Seek Audience. That's when he was teaching Bible class and they were waiting outside and someone came in and said, Oh, behold, your mother and your brothers are out there. You should be familiar with these. Matthew 13:55. When Jesus had finished these parables, the kingdom of heaven parables from Matthew 13, he departed from there. He came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished, said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is this not the carpenter's son? The parallel in Mark says, is this not the carpenter? Both father and son had the same trade. Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters, not named, but plural, his sisters, are they not all with us? Now, interesting, they know the names in verse 55. The mother and the brothers, though, are no longer with them because he moved them to Capernaum earlier in the ministry the sisters though are with them and uh typically it's natural to presume that they got married and uh stayed there in nazareth with their uh with their husbands and in their new families his sisters are they not all with us where then did this man get all these things and they took offense at him all right so there's the uh, listing of the brothers. James is, later became the Apostle James, mentioned in Acts 15 and elsewhere in the book of Acts, uh, one of the pillars of the Jerusalem church. He wrote the book of James. All right, the book of the Bible, the book of James, was written by the half-brother of our Lord. Likewise, Judas, or Jude, wrote the book of Jude. Again, half-brother of our Lord. I believe all four of these boys were called as apostles once the church age began. And uh, Judas wrote the book of Judas. From the book of Jude. We don't know a whole. We don't know anything really about Joseph and Simon. There's some early traditions, but they're kind of dubious. All right. There's more information on that in the notes of Galilean Ministry 26, and you can go to the website, listen to those messages as well. You're familiar with how to do that? Okay. Jesus' brothers had advice for him. This is point three. Jesus' brothers had advice for him based upon their unbelieving viewpoint. Jesus' brothers had advice for him based upon their unbelieving viewpoint. John 7, verse 5. John 7, 5 is not just simply a random thought separate from the... the uh, context of what's going on it is an explanatory comment when it says his brothers were not believing in him it says for by way of explanation providing the motivation for the statement i can't stress enough when you have a for or a therefore You've got to stop and, 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 and determine what it's there for. All right? It's there for a reason. The for 
could be explanatory, it could be causal, it could be motivation. But there's a reason for it being there, and you've got to lock in why is that four there, and what is that four doing there. In this case, they make a statement. Go to Jerusalem. Show yourself to the world. He says, if you do these things, in verse 4, show yourself to the world. They're giving him a command. This is an imperative. Show yourself. Expose yourself. Manifest yourself. Shine your glory. Make a big splash. They're telling him to manifest himself to the cosmos. Even though he was in the cosmos, he made the cosmos, and the cosmos was made by him, the cosmos did not know him. We'll have some things to say about the cosmos here in this study. Anyway, this is their imperative. Show yourself to the world. They're ordering him, giving him this advice, right? And then in verse 5, the explanation for. This gives us the motivation behind the statements they're making, that they're thinking, that prompts the advice they're giving. And it's coming from an unbelieving viewpoint. Coming from an unbelieving viewpoint. <laughs> the, um, I think we need to be more um, gracious towards this lost and dying world in which we live. We need to be more relaxed about what we observe the sons of this age doing and not be so offended or not be so scandalized or shocked. <gasps> what do you expect? Dogs bark. Cats meow. And unbelievers, sons of darkness, participate in deeds of darkness. Is that a shock? If it offends your Christian sensibilities, then rethink them. Consider Not for yourself, but rethink them and consider that you're applying a standard to someone that's not of that realm. See, you know, you're over getting your oil changed, you're sitting in a waiting room and someone's talking to you and you're talking about whatever and they, they talk about, uh, uh, you, you know, you, you ask, well, you know, or do you have children? Are you married? And they look at you and say, oh, no, no, no. I'm not ready for marriage yet. Uh, but, you know, I've been living with my boyfriend for three years now. We're not ready for marriage yet. You know, as if, you know, after three years, you haven't figured it out, or <laughs> right? Do you like the guy, or what, what are you really doing? But approach it, though, you know, if they're in the world, why does that shock you? It, it shouldn't shock you any more than a dog barking or scratching his ear or eating his puke or whatever he's going to do. That's what a dog does. And so, uh, yeah, and then they say, oh, well, yeah, no, I'm not ready for marriage yet. We're just living together. I've been living together for three years and you know, maybe someday. And they say, you know, I, I really think it's smart. This is what the other person says. I really think it's smart. I think everyone should live together before they get married. That way they know if they're compatible, right? And then here's the key. You don't judge them. You don't jump on them. You don't just, you know, gasp in, in horror. But then they turn and they say, well, what do you think? All right. Now, since you've asked, I'm not judging you. I'm not jumping on you. I'm not thumping a Bible or preaching at you. But you asked me, what do I think? Now I have an opportunity to say, well, 
to be honest, I, uh, uh, I, I'm a Christian pastor. And I pastor a Bible church right over here on Woodrow Avenue. And uh, I believe the Bible describes sinful activity and worldly activity and w- appropriate Christian activity. And then awkward silence. And then a very, oh, one of those kind of things, right? And then you find out, but see, I didn't tell her, oh, you're going to go to hell for living with this guy. You ask me what I think. Hey, I'm a Christian pastor. I have standards that are consistent with what the Bible says is inappropriate. Okay? And then, oh, okay. Well, yeah, then I guess you probably wouldn't approve of, of my suggestion. Well, no, I, I really wouldn't. You know. But then you, it's not a personal. It's not a vicious attack. It's just simply saying, look, this is the standard I make my decisions on. You obviously don't. And that's fine. What do you, how do you make your decisions? Well, actually, I'm Jewish. My father's a rabbi. I grew up in a very strict family. And, yeah, right now I'm, I'm violating the Torah, according to my Jewish background. Okay. Well, not a secret. I know it. You know it. If, you're, if your conscience isn't bothered by it. But maybe it is. Or maybe this conversation will spark some thought next week and the week after and the week after that. All right. Any illustrations are purely fictitious. Resemblance to persons living or dead is purely coincidental. But that actually, that did take place. It took place right over here on Burnett Road years and years ago now. I like to sneak up on people. When uh, I'm at a restaurant or out and whatever, I don't look like a pastor. Say, I'm not dressed like on a t-shirt or a baseball ball cap on or something. I don't know what it is. People get uh, surprised. It's one of those beware of Pastor Bob things. You just never know what uh, I'll be wearing or where I'm going to show up. But if you make decisions based on an unbelieving viewpoint, your approach is going to be at odds with God's approach. If you've got an idea for how we can grow this ministry and how we can bring people in and how we can make money and how we can boost the budget, great. (laughs) Love to hear those ideas. However, Is that idea coming from a faith viewpoint or an unbelieving viewpoint? Is it pistis for faith or a-pistis for the unbelieving viewpoint? Because if it's the world's method, if it's market-driven, or sometimes called purpose-driven, all right, if it's it's worldly-oriented with Madison Avenue marketing, I don't want any part of it. But if it's God's viewpoint, for how he has drafted the operation of a local church to function, then, by all means, <laughs> let's hear your ideas. All right? So, we have this different advice. Their advice, go make a splash. Their advice, you're never going to go anywhere here in Galilee. If you want to make it big time, Jerusalem's the place to be. Okay? It'd be like uh, you're a struggling actor, but the only venue you ever uh, you ever function in is the uh, the uh, what's that playhouse up there in Georgetown, the, the theater up there in downtown Georgetown. All right. You could be the biggest actor in the world, 
most talented, everything else. But if that's your only stage, how much exposure are you going to get? Or, no, it's, you got to get to Hollywood, right? <laughs> Hollywood, baby, that's where, the, that's where you get discovered. That's where the agents will, will flock all over you and pour money and all this other stuff. Something to uh, consider in terms of the, um, the relocation. What's the advantage of, of uh, staying in Crestview? What's the disadvantage of staying in Crestview? What are the pros and cons? Well, what's the exposure on Woodrow Avenue compared to the exposure on Dessau, for example? You know, clearly there's a lot more traffic, visibility, exposure, things like that. But so that's a plus, that's a benefit. We say, hey, that's kind of cool. But that's not what's driving the whole issue. I want to make sure that we're not just simply, see, this is where churches get off track. We want to build the most glorious temple we can so people will be impressed with our building and go, wow, that's got to be a cool church. All right. As long as we have our motivation right, if we have a believing viewpoint underlying our decisions, then we'll be pleasing to the Father. An unbelieving viewpoint, we're in trouble. All right, I'm out of time. Their advice was for Jesus to abandon Galilee. And uh, there's some subpoints under this, and, and then his answer about his time versus their time, and some details in this I want to cover. So we'll take uh, next week and maybe more, but uh, multiple sessions here to cover this event. And then we'll be basically done with the Galilean ministry. There's still events 55 and 56. 55 is the Galilean departure and the Samaritans who want to keep them from buying food on the way to Jerusalem. And uh, James and John want to go ahead and nuke the whole village. So we'll, we'll look at that. It's kind of fun. And then uh, the final message when he tells them the cost of discipleship, you can't put your hand to the, to the plow and, and look back. Very critical, not only for their benefit, but for his own benefit. He had to teach that message to remind himself that he's about to undertake this final Judean ministry, and it will end at the cross. And so putting your hand to the plow and looking back is not, uh, is not acceptable. Those are the last two events, and then we will be wrapping up the Galilean ministry. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the time. We thank you, Father, for uh, strengthening my voice. This is the best class I've felt in, in months, and I thank you for that. And I thank you for uh, believers that uh, are hungry for the Word of God, and I thank you in Christ's name. Amen.